After everything is said and done, did anything actually come from COP27? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Becosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a climate communicator. Today, we'll dive into the final takeaways of COP27. If you have already seen the COP27 Part 2 video on the Becosphere YouTube channel, this is the same content. If not, buckle up and let's get right into it. Today we are going to talk about week two of COP27, the large UN climate conference that took place in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt over the last two weeks. Make sure you check out my first on COP27 first because it will provide a little more background information and the expectations of the conference as well as early progress points. I'm going to split this up into seven focus points for COP27. The host, Egypt. Voices, basically whose voices are getting amplified and who are getting quieted. Emissions pledge updates. Methane reduction pledge updates. Tackling deforestation. Hashtag WTF, which stands for Where's the Funding? Yes, that acronym actually circulated around the conference. I love it. And the final document. Egypt. Towards the beginning of the conference, European officials were already bombarded with reports of young delegates being left without beds or in rooms without locks and being subjected to extortion and being woken up in the middle of the night by officials requesting documents. These problems seem to be built into the program sponsored by the Egyptian Ministry of Youth and Sports. About 80 delegates paid $700 for accommodations just to get to Egypt and be asked to pay another $300-$600 per night for a place to sleep. Rooms were filthy and crowded. COP27 was also short on food and water supplies. And by Thursday of the first week, Egypt made all drinks free. Helps that they were all through Coca-Cola, which is the sponsor, and cut food prices in half. The COP27 app allegedly had spyware on it, according to analysts, so the Egyptian government could listen in on private conversations and access encrypted text messages and emails. And during the weekend between the first and second week of COP27, hundreds of activists took to Sharm el-Sheikh streets demanding climate action. This was a rare sighting in Egypt where protesting and civil disobedience are quickly and harshly squashed. Protesters mainly called for wealthy countries to pay for loss and damage funds to poorer ones. I covered the basics of loss and damage funding in the first COP27 video, so if you don't know what I'm referring to there, make sure you check out that first video. The protesters were also concerned about Egypt's most famous political prisoner, Ala Abd El Fattah, who has been in jail for 11 years. The Egyptian British activist and software developer was on a hunger strike since April and started refusing water when the climate conference began. He has since collapsed and has been given nutrients intravenously, but he says that he plans to resume his hunger strike as soon as he can. The U.S., Britain, France, and Germany have called on Abdel Fattah's release, but no progress has been made. He is just one of thousands of political prisoners in Egypt right now. Then a BBC and source material investigation came out showing that during the climate conference, an Egyptian oil terminal was dumping toxic wastewater off the Red Sea coast, threatening the health of a rare species of coral that has actually been doing well in warmer waters, unlike all of its other counterparts, pretty much. The wastewater comes as a byproduct of oil and gas drilling, and the chemicals could kill the coral species that is important for coral restoration research. Most tropical coral reef populations are threatened by even just 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. Leaked documents show that Egypt has been aware of this wastewater issue since 2019. 
In more positive Egyptian news, the country signed framework deals to launch its green hydrogen and ammonia industry. Egypt wants to control 5% of this market by 2040. Green hydrogen is made by wind and solar powering electrolyzers that split water into hydrogen and oxygen. Green ammonia is a stable liquid form of that hydrogen, basically. These fuels are important tools for decarbonizing heavy industry and transportation. This technology is still fairly new, though, and is very limited in its decarbonization capabilities. It's also expensive and requires a lot of energy to produce. Currently, hydrogen and ammonia are made as byproducts of gas. When hydrogen is made like that, it's called blue hydrogen. Some challenges Egypt will need to work on are its limited access to water and how close it is to be able to build hydrogen factories near exporting ports. Egypt was offered $250 million from Germany and the U.S. to help reach its goal of reaching 42% clean energy generation by 2030, decommissioning 12 inefficient gas plants, and kickstarting its green hydrogen plan. Most of the money will be in the form of grants and debt swaps, so that's actually pretty cool. We'll get into more of the funding commitments in a bit. First, I want to talk about whose voices were heard and whose were kind of silenced. Voices. By the way, there's construction going on next to me, so if you hear that, that's what that is. <laughs> Good timing. Thank you. Appreciate that. While the conference was going on in Egypt, religious leaders from different practices joined together for the world's first interfaith ceremony on climate change in London. The event included representatives from Christianity, Judaism, Muslim, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Sikhism. It was meant as a time to, quote, ask for forgiveness for climate sins and join together to promote collective action. Similar events were supposed to take place in Egypt and other parts of the world, though I'm not sure how many actually did. Back in Egypt, U.S. House Republicans that have formed the Conservative Climate Caucus touted the benefits of fossil fuels, claiming that greenhouse emissions and fossil fuels aren't the same things. The group claims that they recognize that climate change is a problem, but disagreed with what they called radical environmentalism, which if you consider fossil fuels to be the main driver of emissions, radical environmentalism? One hand, we're deifying wind and solar. On the other hand, we're demonizing fossil fuels. And I think we need to decide as a world, do we hate greenhouse gas emissions or do we hate fossil fuels? It's not the same thing. Okay. I'm not sure how they're reckoning with continuing to support fossil fuels while the UN report that they claim to have read stated that we can't afford to continue investing in that type of energy production. What I think we've been very successful in doing over the last few years and saying, okay, fine, let's, let's actually have the conversation. Let's look at the science. Let's look at the UN's report. It doesn't say what the headlines say. That's a, that's a key thing to remember. There's a cost. There's problems that we should deal with and that we have an interest in mitigating. There's conservation efforts that we have an interest in perpetuating, absolutely. But let's not lie to our children and scare them to death and tell them they're going to burn alive because of this, because that is not what it says. No one is telling their children they're literally going to burn in hell. That's a straw man argument. Crenshaw from Texas claims that switching from coal to gas reduces the same number of emissions as giving every American solar panels and a Tesla 
and doubling the country's wind capacity. For clarification, he pulled this comparison out of his ass. Gas has been found to leak way more methane than we thought, which is 80 times better at trapping in heat for the first 20 years that they're in the atmosphere. So while it's cleaner than coal, it's not a clean form of energy at all. But because Crenshaw is convinced that gas is a way to go, he supports building more gas infrastructure. So... There you go. These guys are now in charge of the house and we'll talk in a future video about what that means for the US's climate policies moving forward. On Tuesday of the conference, the Climate Action Against Disinformation Coalition released an analysis finding that false and misleading claims by right-wing media still continue to hurt climate action even within the boundaries of COP27's event. Fox News continues to be a prominent disseminator of this disinformation. Shocking, I know. While pro-fossil fuel sentiments were loud at the conference, important voices remained quiet. A BBC analysis found that women made up less than 34% of the country's negotiation team, which is one of the lowest levels for a COP. This isn't good because women are actually disproportionately impacted by extreme weather events for a variety of reasons, including lack of access to resources and education, restrictive clothing requirements, pregnancy, and being in more caretaking roles. Another group that continues to have its voice silenced is the indigenous community. Despite indigenous activists having a record turnout at COP27 this year, many leaders said they were shut out of negotiation talks. And by record turnout, indigenous representation still made up less than 1% of the conference's attendance. They had half the number of representatives as fossil fuel companies. This is problematic because indigenous communities are at the front lines of climate change. They are disproportionately impacted by extreme weather events, but they are also the best caretakers and advocates for their piece of the planet. They have centuries of knowledge about being environmental stewards that is largely being ignored right now. Finally, some voices that are beginning to speak to each other again are China and the U.S. The top emitters' environmental representatives started speaking to each other during COP27, and President Biden and President Xi began speaking during the G20 meeting in Bali, Indonesia. Oh, that's another important thing, by the way. During the second week of COP, most of the world's leaders actually left to go to the G20 meeting happening at the same time, leaving the environmental ministers in Egypt to argue about the details. This is actually a pretty common practice. Carbon Emissions Cuts Several more emissions pledges were announced during the second week. Mexico pledged to reduce emissions by 35% by 2030, up from 22%. The country is the 15th historically largest emitter in the world. This will require $40 billion in investment and some 40 gigawatts of additional clean energy generation. Some of that power will come from solar plants in the Sonoran Desert. The minister also said reducing methane in oil and gas production is a very important issue. Here's the catch, though. They didn't say 35% compared to what. Usually when you're saying reducing so-and-so emissions by this time frame, it's compared to a baseline year. Like the U.S. uses 1990 as a marker a lot for its emissions pledges. But Mexico didn't say by when, so there's no way to really monitor this progress. Turkey announced plans to reduce emissions by 41% by 2030 compared to business as usual scenarios. Because Turkey's emissions are projected to rise exponentially in a business as usual scenario, this is likely to mean that the country will still increase its emissions by 32% by 2030 to peak emissions 
in 2038 at the latest. Experts expect Turkey to emit twice as much in 2030 as it did in 2020 under this plan. The plan doesn't really seem to line up with the goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2053, which is what Turkey plans to do. It also doesn't line up with what is needed to keep warming well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Turkey is a heavy coal user and its plan doesn't say anything about phasing down this form of energy production either. So not impressed. Speaking of phasing down fossil fuels, this COP, we saw the strongest effort yet to add phasing down oil and gas to the final COP27 document. Right now, international agreements only go so far as to phase out unabated coal and insufficient fossil fuel subsidies, leaving room open for heavy coal states to just switch to oil and gas instead of clean energy. India led this effort this year to add oil and gas to the phase down list, and the EU and the UK supported this effort. Wait until the end to hear about how the fossil fuel phase down and loss and damage battle actually went on the final document. The Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, or BOGA, had trouble recruiting this year, likely due to the energy crisis. BOGA was formed at COP26 by Costa Rica and Denmark as a way for countries to commit to phasing down oil and gas in line with the Paris Agreement. And it now includes Ireland, Sweden, Wales, Greenland, the U.S. state of Washington, and the Canadian province of Quebec. Only Portugal joined this year. The group announced that it was setting aside $10 million to provide analysis and advice to developing countries to help them move away from fossil fuels. There's another alliance, this one of nearly 40 countries meant to hold public financing for fossil fuel projects abroad by this year, and it includes the US, Canada, and Germany. This alliance also struggled to recruit new members this year. One COP26 launched alliance that actually did have some luck recruiting this year was the Zero Emissions Vehicle Declaration. France and Spain became two of the latest countries to commit to stopping the sale of gas-powered vehicles by 2035. That's five years early than the countries previously planned. This declaration can be signed by municipalities, companies, and countries. The number of signatories increased from 130 to 214 this year. The Accelerating to Zero Coalition, a group of policymakers launched this year, will see that these signatories follow through with their promise. Methane Emissions Cuts At the end of the first week, the UN Environment Program announced the launch of the Methane Alert and Response System, or MARS, a public database of global methane leaks detected by satellites. This will be used to reinforce the methane pledge signed by 109 countries during COP26 to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030. Methane emissions hit an all-time high this year, so the countries could use some help but the effort is still voluntary. The UNEP's International Methane Emissions Observatory will just tell the offending country if there's a leak, if it doesn't cease in 45 to 75 days, and hope countries fix it. But at least now there will be more eyes on the problem spots, I guess. The system right now just focuses on methane from oil and gas infrastructure, but the group hopes to expand to include coal, livestock, waste, and rice operations in the future. A major country that has not joined the methane pledge is China. But China did announce plans to curb methane emissions by 30% by 2030 during COP27. They stopped short of formally joining the pledge. Much of China's methane emissions comes from coal and agriculture operations. 
At his speech at the end of COP27's first week, U.S. President Biden announced plans for the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, to crack down on methane emissions more by allowing third-party groups to report methane emissions. And while the EPA proposed methane regulations on working oil and gas sites starting next year, the agency is going for all leaky wells. Half of the well-based emissions come from wells that don't actually produce enough oil and gas to be originally counted, so this is a big deal. Many of them are practically forgotten, but continue continue to leak methane. They're considered low-hanging fruits for reducing this potent greenhouse gas. The EPA also proposed putting tighter limits on flaring when oil operations burn off gas because they don't have the infrastructure to capture it. New studies are continuously coming out that show companies don't successfully burn off as much methane as they report they do through this flaring activity. Right after Biden announced these new regulations, two other top oil and gas producers and methane emitters, Canada and Nigeria, announced laws to rein in methane emissions from oil and gas operations. Oil and gas producers in both countries now must find and cap leaks using methane detecting sensors to do so. Canada wants to see methane from these sources drop by 75% by 2030 compared with 2012 levels, and Nigeria wants to see it drop by 61% by 2031 compared with 2020 levels. Tackling deforestation. Kenya announced a plan to plant 15 billion trees in the next decade in an effort to lower carbon emissions and fight desertification, which is when a landscape turns into a desert. Kenya has already mostly decarbonized its energy grid, getting 92% of its energy from renewable sources, mainly geothermal, and one of the biggest wind farms on the continent. But regionally, the country is suffering from a lack of tree cover. Kenya only has 6.3% of its land covered in trees. This lack of vegetation has exacerbated drought conditions and ruined crop yields. In fact, Kenya is experiencing its worst drought in 40 years right now. Kenya's president, who has a doctorate in plant ecology and wrote his 2018 thesis on land use changes, hopes to cover 30% of his country's land in trees by 2030. To make sure this is done properly, the government will recruit 2,700 forest rangers and 600 officers. To help get the money to do that, Kenya is creating a carbon offset program through the UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change's REDD plus mechanism. Kenya also has a goal of re further reducing carbon emissions by 32% by 2030. Between climate mitigation and adaptation, the country estimates it will need $62 billion to meet these goals. It says it needs wealthy countries to foot 87% of that bill. Brazil's new president-elect Lula da Silva was treated like a rock star when he showed up at COP27. Brazil's current president Bolsonaro would practically spell a death sentence to the Amazon rainforest if he stayed in office, but Lula's previous presidential record saw a drastic drop in deforestation, which is why he's so popular at this conference. He also did as promised and got Indonesia and the Congo to the table to sign a rainforest protection pact. These three countries hold much of the world's tropical rainforests, which are essential carbon sinks, regional climate stations stabilizers, and biodiversity hubs. While there is no money attached to this pact, the nation agreed to come up with a funding mechanism. This is a very big deal, and I'll keep you posted on how this whole pact shapes out. One direction the funding will come from, at least for Brazil's Amazon, is the Norway-backed Amazon Fund. The fund actually existed before, but Bolsonaro froze it. Now, Norway's environment minister said that it will restart at the beginning of next year. It contains $524 million, a large portion of which comes from Norway. Hashtag WTF. Where's the funding?
Let's start with energy transition funding. The G7 nations offered Indonesia $15 billion to help retire its coal plants early as part of the country's Just Energy Transition Partnership, or JETP. This money will likely help shut down 6.7 gigawatts of coal-fired power in favor of clean energy. Indonesia has pledged to retire all of its coal plants by 2056, which is way too far out of a goal to avoid catastrophic climate change. This effort could help the country reach its goal of reducing its emissions by 25% by 2030. JETP money mainly comes from a combination of loans and grants from multilateral banks like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, more on them in a bit, and private sector funding through the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is a group of financial institutions like BlackRock that make up $150 trillion in assets. Vietnam was the next country to receive a JETP funding package, this one led by the EU and the UK. Vietnam will receive anywhere from 11 to $14 billion, depending on how much private sector funding is obtained, to decarbonize its energy sector. Like Indonesia, Vietnam is very reliant on coal, which makes up about half of its energy supply. Luckily, Vietnam has a lot of wind energy possibilities along its blustery coastlines. Now let's move on to loss and damage funding. On the last official day of COP27, delegates presented a draft proposal decision stating that the multilateral banks that I mentioned earlier need to be reformed. This eventually got added to COP27's final document of decisions made. These banks are where many developing countries get disaster funding and are now in debt to because that funding came in the form of loans usually with interest. Reforming them to properly facilitate loss and damage funding in a way that doesn't continue the debt cycle could be a game changer for some climate vulnerable countries. We just have to wait and see what actually will come from this. Frankly, expect it to take years. For immediate funding news, New Zealand joined a few other countries in slowly adding to the loss and damage fund pot. The country allocated $12 million to help poorer countries recover after extreme weather events. The final document. Okay, now for the grand finale, the moment when the final COP27 decision document makes progress on the record. Like the COPs prior, delegates representing almost 200 countries went 48 hours overtime working into the night and in the early morning to negotiate a final document to life. As I mentioned earlier, reforming multilateral banks made it onto the list for the first time. Despite India and the EU pushing to phase down all fossil fuels, not just abated coal, that text did did not make it onto the final document. The EU climate chief proposed to Egypt that if countries vowed to peak global emissions by 2025 and phase down all fossil fuels, then the conference will pay for loss and damage funds. The next day, Egypt released the draft text that included loss and damage funding, but not the fossil fuel phase down promise. It seemed like there would be no loss and damage fund to come out of this conference, and developing countries were getting increasingly frustrated with wealthy nations and China for not supporting as much. 10-year-old Nakiat Dramani of Ghana gave her speech, which I showed at the beginning of this video, and then negotiators kept negotiating until finally a flawed loss and damage fund draft emerged. In the end, we are left with a promise to work on developing the details of a loss and damage fund over the next year, and no increase in carbon reduction commitments or fossil fuel phase-down commitments. Conversations about developing a more structured carbon market will also drag on to next year. And that literally was what was on the final document and what wasn't. So a slight promise for loss and damage funding and a promise to talk about carbon credits and that's it. <laughs> 
And that is another cop in the books. I'm frankly indifferent. The result of the final document did not surprise me at all. I think my favorite progress sector was actually tackling deforestation. Between Kenya's informed reforesting plan to the Rainforest Pact, I'm actually feeling a little bit hopeful about these moves. And that was the final takeaways of COP27. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, leave a review, and check out the Beckosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.